This is your host, Casey Deshock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There, you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. This is episode seven, and my guest today is Patrice Gopo. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. Thanks so much, Casey. It's really a pleasure to be here. Patrice was raised in Anchorage. She's of Jamaican and Indian ancestry, which we will talk about some today. And she's the author of All the Colors We Will See, Reflections on Barriers, Brokenness, and Finding Our Way. You can find the book at patricegopo.com. And the book is an excellent choice for uh, if you have a small group or you have a book club. It could be pretty effective in a school setting. And there's also a discussion guide on her website. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, BAM, among other places. And I'm really excited to have her on here because I got done reading the book. And it is a fantastic, fantastic book. And there is some difficulty. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it... It really was. It's a very easy read, and um, as you go through it, it, it each chapter because it's it's really a collection of essays. Each of the chapters might move you from your your way over here, and then all of a sudden you're thinking about something completely different than you were as you go into the next chapter, and then or or next essay, and then you get into the the third one, and it all ties back in, and it's it's really hard to stop reading it, especially because. Early on in the book, there's a lot of Alaska tied into it. Yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, that's where I grew up and it's my first home. So it features heavily in the book because it's part of what shaped who I am today. And that's that's how I came across the book. I said, that put into Google, find Alaskan authors or find books about Alaska. Your book came up. I ordered it, read it, reached out to you. And so really happy to have you here. You bill yourself actually as an Alaskan transplanted transplanted to North Carolina, something like that. And in the book, there's tons. Yes. Of, yeah, there's tons of these stories about Alaska. So, talk a little bit about what it was like for you growing up. What Alaska was to you early on? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the story is that my parents are actually Jamaican immigrants, and when my father came to the United States, he actually went to New York first, and he completed high school there, and then it was during the time of the Vietnam War, and he had actually gone back to Jamaica at that point, but he was a permanent U.S. resident, and so he received a draft notice, and in order to maintain his residency, he needed to respond to this draft notice, and so after his basic training, he actually was sent to Alaska. So apparently everyone else in his group, except for one other person, was sent to Vietnam. And he was sent to Anchorage. And then the other guy, we don't know where he was sent. We don't remember. And that was really the beginnings of my family's ties to Alaska. And so my father would have known my mother from Jamaica. And he went back to Jamaica. They got married. And she moved from Kingston, Jamaica, to Anchorage, Alaska. And it was certainly a huge move. And I think they didn't realize that this was going to be the place where they raised their family. So my sister and I, we were born in Anchorage and my childhood primarily took place on the Anchorage hillside. I attended Bear Valley Elementary School. I went to Hanshu Junior High School and I graduated from service high school. And what I like to tell people is that Growing up in Anchorage was a very special experience that is, um, it's just ingrained in me. It's part of who I am. There are so many things about just my connection with nature, my connection with the outdoors. Uh, I think even connection with community because many of the people who were in Anchorage at the time around where we were living were also from other places and they didn't have family close by just like we didn't have family close by. So I think in many ways, these people became like family to us. And that was, I think that's a richness of my childhood that I had 
But I think the other reality that was very true is that my family was very unlike many other families that were there. Uh, There were very few Black families, particularly in our part of the city. And amongst the Black families, there were very few that were, you know, Jamaican, Jamaican immigrant Uh families. And so I think there was always that tension of recognizing that this is a place and community that loves me and yet having this story that is very different from kind of the expected narrative that maybe are even taught in school or that people uh, think should happen. Um, And so, so I think there was a lot of navigating identity that I was experiencing growing up that I probably didn't even have vocabulary and language to articulate. Uh, just because it wasn't really a conversation point that was coming up. And so so I think in that regard, as much as there was richness and beauty about my childhood in Anchorage, I always had this desire to go see what else was out there in the world and find out were there other places where there were people more like me out there and what were they doing and how were they living and maybe how was that part of who I am too? Well, in Jamaica couldn't be from a, from a climate and somewhat cultural standpoint, couldn't be much different than, than Alaska is just as far as cultural norms, the way that you have to, the way that things happen. I mean, obviously the, uh, the climate is significantly different, which poses its own problems, but uh, you said, So the military brought you up, which it's funny because Alaska seems to, you have Alaska native population and you have a little bit of the homesteader generation, which is dying Mm -hmm. out and it's not as significant as uh, it once was. But then basically you have the pipeline days and you have the military that's brought most of the population to Alaska. So there's a bit of that shared story from various, various cultures that all come together and it's in Anchorage, it's in Fairbanks, uh, Kodiak to a lesser extent as far as the military goes, but people have come together and it's this mixing, very mixing of different uh, di- different backgrounds. And what you mentioned a little bit is sometimes it becomes sectioned off in some of these communities as well, where even though you have the opportunity for it to be very, very diverse, you have... Filipino community, they stay to the Filipino community, the native community states the native community, the white community states the white community, Jamaican community states the Jamaican community, because the schools are relatively diverse, Anchorage is relative, relatively diverse, but that's just kind of what happens. Sorry, can you just repeat your last comment? That's kind of what, that's kind of just what, what happens is that we, we tend to section ourselves off, you know, Anchorage poses the opportunity for a wide range of diversity because you have all of these backgrounds coming together, but it seems like, right. Okay. This is, this is my community over here, or this is the Jamaican community, or this is the white community, or these are the, this is the Filipino community, etc. Right. And, you know, and, right. and it, it's very clear when you have, you know, the Samoan community might be over here. And it seems like even though there's that giant opportunity for there to be a big diversity, even in Anchorage, you see that people are a little bit more comfortable going into their own communities. Right. And I think there is some truth to that. And I think you'll see that around the world that by and large, people generally like to be with people who are like themselves because I think there's a sense of understanding of what that might be that you understand the expectations, you understand um, just how people are functioning in the world, that maybe the food you're eating seems familiar and you feel comfortable in that. So I do think that certainly happens. I will say, you know, growing up as a Jamaican American in Anchorage, I didn't really feel there was a critical mass of us that we might have our own community. I think in many ways, my family was functioning um, in you know, in the South Anchorage setting, which is predominantly a white setting, um, and trying to figure out where we fit into that particular place. So, so that was my particular experience. And the other thing that I think can sometimes happen too is I do feel that while we can have discussions about the level of diversity, I think what is 
still often true is that that white people still form the dominant culture in many of these settings. And so even if you have four, if, if in a classroom setting, if there's 10 children and four of them may be children of color, but they might be their own particular child of color. So you might have a black American, you might have a Filipino American, you might have these different ones. And then you also have six white children, I think you're still going to get that sense of the dominant culture, even if there is the opportunity for diversity that exists there. And so I think that also impacts how people choose to connect and interact. And if they feel that maybe their culture is going to get pushed out or be overlooked or, um, or, or even this assumption that just because there are um, people from multiple cultures, it suddenly makes the space feel diverse. I don't know if that's always the case. Well, I want to, I, I really want to explore maybe the, the example you have of the classroom in just, uh, I'm going to move to that in just a tiny bit because I don't know, because okay. uh, I'm, I'm ready for that one, but I just want to lay down a little bit more groundwork about the book, how it came along and and what your ideas were behind it so you're you're writing the absolutely as you write the book we've talked about okay this is how people come to alaska one of the other things that's unique about alaska i believe that this is true every observation that i have this is true is that alaska has its own identity which transcends you know races backgrounds etc so you can be of any background and if you if you have a connection to Alaska it seems like a lot of people tend to identify or associate with Alaska and it's it's unique yeah. as compared to when I had talked to you earlier in uh, an example would be is there a difference between Patrice from Anchorage and or Patrice from St. Louis and I think that there is a big difference yeah. you know and I think that there is a big difference between where in the lower 48, there might not be quite the, the the ability to say, yep, I'm definitely from Missouri or I'm definitely from Arkansas. But Alaskans, even if they're going to leave, tend to carry a piece of Alaska with them. And I'm not exactly sure why that is. And it could be because you're isolated. There's a reason. There's something that's brought you there. Or it could be that you were born and raised here, but uh, many people are brought here. And so mm-hmm. you identify yeah. with it forever and the world tends to look at Alaska a little bit differently, or at least we like to think that the world looks at Alaska a little bit differently than some of the other states. Right. Absolutely. I, I think there's a lot of truth there. I think there's something about the idea of Alaska being remote and isolated and unique that really, I don't know if it connects our souls together in a, in a sort of way. Um, but I, I have seen that sense of people carry it with them. They bring this with them even when they go other places. And I, I remember when I went to uh, undergraduate to college at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And when I got there, there, I tell you, Casey, there were people from all over the world there. I remember across the hall from me, there was a girl from Indonesia. There were people from just other places that I found fascinating, but by and large, people were most fascinated with me and most fascinated with this idea of, I came from Anchorage, I came from Alaska, that they've never met anyone who had actually lived in Alaska and grew up in Alaska. And, and I just remember feeling this sense of, I felt special, I did feel special by that. I think sometimes some of the comments, you know, people are like, oh, do you live like this? Is this how you, you know, people have their assumptions? And I think those got a little bit old after a while. But at the same time, I still, to this day, it's something that I carry a sense of, I don't know, delight in, that this is part of my story, that I got to be part of this, that I experienced this, that this was actually really my life. And uh, and I think part of it is just because maybe people aren't as familiar. They don't have as many contact touch points to Alaska. 
And so it, it does create for something special about your story. And I think the reality is we are all out there in the world wondering if our lives are significant, wondering if what we contribute to our society, wondering if, you know, what we're going through and doing in our lives matters. And I think in a way to have a place that's unique to, to the world be part of your life, it adds to those answers to those questions. Well, as I was reading through the book, you were talking about this, this special nature or something that connects our souls together is how you referred to it. Um, when somebody picks up this book and they're reading it, and especially if they're sitting down in Anchorage, you have your stories going down to the Russian river to do a suicide run, to yes. get a double limit. And people that grab this book, they don't know you. They don't know me. They don't, they don't, they're not going to share your ancestry probably, but that story, they can picture the drive. They can picture the scenery. They can Absolutely. picture where your dad was fishing, what he was wearing, right. where you were parked. Mm-hmm. All of those stories are something that that connect a lot of people. And then you talk about going to a fish camp or pulling fish from a net. And these are things yeah. that various cultures, you might not think, okay, this culture isn't into fishing or this culture is into fishing, etc. And then you get up here right. and all of a sudden it's all connected. And there's, there's groups that you wouldn't think were hunters that are hunters or trapping or fishing, right. etc. which is a really neat experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that about the book because I I feel very strongly that with writing that you you are working to create what I what not even what I call but what people call windows and mirrors. And so a mirror is going to be something in your story that another person can see themselves in that too. And so for example, what you just shared, I think there are plenty of Alaskans who can very much relate to those particular aspects of the story that I shared. So in many ways, it's mirrored their experience too. And so I think that becomes a connection point for us between my story and your story. And then I think what is really neat that happens with stories too, is that there are also windows, that there are places where you then get to look into another person's life and then see something that actually is not the same as your life. And so I feel that with my book, I've created a lot of mirrors and windows that are here, that there are these connection points where people say, hey, I get that about what she just wrote. I know the park, like where they were parked. I know that experience of wanting to get that double limit type thing. And yet there's plenty of other things I have shared in this book that I'm sure plenty of people may not themselves have experienced too, that it, it will be something different or new or a different lens in which they might even see the place where they've lived. So one thing, uh, there's one story I love about this book. Uh, I was in Anchorage in October of 2018. So I did multiple book events when the book first launched. And at one of the readings that I did there, a woman came up to me afterwards. Um, she and her husband came up to me afterwards and you know, she introduced herself, she said hi, and then her husband introduced himself and said his name. And I said, we went to, and he finished the sentence, elementary school together. And I said, right, we went to elementary school together. And the woman was saying to me that she had read my book, and she she didn't grow up in Anchorage. She had come up later, and she was reading my book. And as she was reading it, as I was illuminating aspects about the particular place, and the particular time, she said to her husband, you have to know this girl. You you have to know her. And obviously, sure enough, he did. We had gone to school together. So I think that to me just really says something about the power of words and how we can connect, but then how we can also have invitations into recognizing the ways we're different, too. Well, Alaska, in Alaska is often referred to as one small town. So those experiences, when you're talking about, all right, the mirror, that's something I got a lot from the book. Now, as you go through the essays, the window, as you're mentioning, I think that the essays lay out your feelings better than I've seen presented in many ways. And the reason I'm saying that is because oftentimes when we start talking about race, you and I are not of the same Mm -hmm. race. Things right. can come across as, as off-putting or it's like you're not able to understand where the other person is coming from. 
And mm. when you go through your essays, it's very easy to understand and to apply it, not just for your specific situation, but to look at your own life and say, okay, where do I have examples of this? And I think it's mm. easier to understand the window that you provide is a lot better than I've seen done in other areas where it's, it's certainly, it opens up your mind and you're going, wow, okay, this is a way that I really haven't thought about this before. In particular, you talk, mm. you talk about where it's difficult sometimes uh, if you have mixed ancestry to identify with, with what you believe that your ancestry is and how that compares to what your, what your actual uh, reflection or what, what your appearance is. And I found that to be an extremely interesting point that sometimes we look at the appearance of somebody and we want to put them into a box immediately and say, this is, this is kind of the way that somebody's supposed to act or do, or these are the things that they're supposed to participate in when that might not be the full picture all the time. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think the reality too is we are a society that is very intent on classifying people. I, I think in a way we almost feel if we can classify people, then we're in a better position to then decide what should happen. And I think our country is, unfortunately, we just have a very sad history around classification of people and what we then do once we classify people. And so I think that's part of this intensity that we have there. But I think the reality is that there are many people who kind of, I think the borders are not as straightforward between these classifications as we would like. I don't necessarily think we want them to be, but as we think they are, maybe I should say that the borders are not as um, just clear cut as that. They're often permeable. And, and I think in that regard, what happens is we create these spaces where people are then grappling with their own identity and trying to understand where they may fit in society, where they belong. What does it mean if my family is a Black American family, but then we also have this East Indian, as they would refer to it in Jamaica, ancestry. And at the same time, I am growing up in a country that looks at me as a Black American, and I embrace that, that classification as a Black American. And yet at the same time, there are many parts of my narrative that don't align with the expected narrative for Black Americans. And so one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that it's so important that we tell our stories, that we share our stories, uh, especially stories from groups that maybe historically have not had as much voice to share their stories, because I think within the telling of the stories, within the abundance of these stories, we start to recognize the many ways in which actually I can still have this story and also still fully be, you know, Black American. And, uh, and that it doesn't actually have to fit into checkmark this, checkmark that, these kinds, it doesn't have to fit into all these particular norms for me to still have this as my identity. And, and I think it's with the abundance of those stories, as we recognize and we see more stories like that, that we're able to expand our kind of mindset around um, these categories we've created. So I, when I speak, I've often shared this idea that growing up, while I may have read here and there a few books that featured Black Americans as characters, I never once in my childhood read a book that featured a Black American as a character who was the child of immigrants from another country. And, and in the absence of a story like that, how are we then to recognize the expansive nature of what it is to be a Black American, for example, as just an example from my particular experience? Well, and in that, so it would be, you know, it's, it's, uh, it would be a lot to ask. I mean, not necessarily a lot to ask, but, you know, for each one of us to have a main character representative of our exact background, but would we be searching for a character that has the, 
the uh, the appearance of a black American that has that background, or would we be searching for a character, regardless of appearance, that has the mannerisms or the the actions, the 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 background? Is it is it our actions or is it our appearance or do, are those two uh, interact? You know, do do those two? Overlap? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think those are great questions. So my philosophy generally on just characters and representation of books is we need an abundance of stories in the world. And I think sometimes it is going to be related to maybe mannerisms and characteristics. But my personal experience is that that was more readily available that I might find a story that may have a character that mirrors some of my own experiences, like being a bookworm or something. Um, just other characteristics that might have been part of, say, my childhood. But I think it is particularly important that we are having a diverse range of characters physically represented in uh, books. And so one of my things that I love about my book, which I didn't even expect that it was going to do, is that I have heard from teenage Black girls who are attending predominantly white high schools or just existing in predominantly white spaces, that this book has meant something to them. To see how another person like them has navigated this experience. So that's one place where I feel like my book has been able to offer affirmation to the experience of another. I have heard from other people who are um, the children of Jamaican immigrants so very much like me in that regard and kind of that sense of navigating the space of being a black American, but also having this um, ancestry from Jamaica and finding place within our uh, very racialized society that wants to very intently classify people. And I've heard from them that my book has been affirmation to their experience too. So so in that regard, I, I would say, Casey, I think it's across the board, but I think what it's important for us to recognize is what might be lacking in our society in terms of that representation and where it is and the ways in which we can potentially fill in some of those gaps. Well, and know, I think part of that is we, we tell the stories. We create space for telling the stories, for the sharing of the stories. Well, and in your in your book, in, in one portion of your book, something that really really stood out to me was i i have my story it's a, a story of complete white ancestry and, and etc but i thought mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. i thought about my nephew who lives in china and he's very young my brother has lived in china now for years he has a wife that is from china um they're right. married mm-hmm. they have a child and i would have never thought of the of the struggles that that child may have, because I would have only thought of baby Jake as my nephew. I would have never thought about right. anything else. And then this book brought it up to me, brought it to my attention that baby Jake may, if staying in China, which may very well, uh, Jake and his wife, Lucy and, uh, and baby Jake may stay in China forever might not mm-hmm. always be able to be looked at as 100% Chinese, but if he comes to the United States, even though I would view baby Jake as nothing but my nephew, around around baby Jake, it may be a struggle to fit in exactly as an American, but there's this mixture of background, and there's a battle. Right. There's a battle between, and this happens between a lot of, especially when, once you start mixing ancestry, races, etc., there's a battle between there's going to be an appearance and then there's going to be a background and there's going to be a battle between what his mother teaches him and what my brother teaches him. And there's going to be this conflict and uh, how, and you talk about this a little bit in the book, how would we, how do we resolve as it becomes more complicated? And as we, as we begin to mix our, our heritages how do we identify which one of those defines us? Or do we get to choose to define ourselves? I think these are great questions that you're asking, Casey. 
And truth be told, I think the discussion is broad around how it is that people enter into thinking about the formation of their identity and what becomes the more salient piece in their identity. And I think there's the influence of what the society around you says to you. But then I think there's also, you know, at some point you coming into your own and deciding, well, what is this? How is it that I feel about myself? And I, I would just almost wonder, too, if there aren't hard and fast rules for how this happens. So one of the essays I write about in my book concerns my sister and me and just exploring this idea that two daughters raised in the same family with the same background, same ancestry have grappled with their identity in different ways. And I think that is probably related to personality, related to circumstances, related to a great many things. But but I think the thing that I feel that is true in all of this is I think people are looking for where they just belong in society. And I think part of that may be a journey across a lifetime. And I think it's okay. I, I know you were using the word battle quite a bit. And I wonder if maybe there might be another way of thinking about it. So it maybe doesn't feel necessarily, but it's always so much aggression that is uh, creating this tension, but that in fact, maybe this is just the reality of my particular experience, possibly your nephew's particular experience. And that in this grappling that we have, we actually have a lot to offer to society as well in terms of trying to, understand place in society and I think one thing that's interesting for me is I've had people who in no way share my background and they're not necessarily living this background this kind of multi-layered background and yet they've had points of connection with that struggle to think of, well, where is my place in society still? And so I think there there are things that we are able to offer because of our struggles that can actually speak into other people's lives too. Well, now let, let me switch, switch this. I mean, it's not really switching the topic, but let me move into a, a little bit more. Maybe it's contentious. Maybe it's an area where, where there's more things that we need to work out. Um, in the book, you also talk about, well, you're not really talking about it because this is just, this is you, Patrice, you're a chemical engineer. And, yeah. and yes, I am. that is not something that we generally associate with women, whether we like that or not. It's I, just, it's not a normal selection th- that we would think of. And so on top it, of it. Oh, no, go ahead. So on top of all of these different things interwoven inside of your book, you also have this battle that you talk about. And and let me take away the battle because that's where I always go. Uh, But you have have this struggle that you're talking about. Uh, And it's, it's not the struggle of you trying to become a chemical engineer. What I got from it is the struggle to avoid somebody being surprised that you're a chemical engineer and how that can sometimes, uh, it can sometimes bother you, it, not you particularly, but bother a person that somebody just assumes from, from looking, oh, she's, uh, she's a woman and she's mm-hmm. probably not a chemical engineer. Or the reaction when somebody says, you're a chemical engineer from Carnegie Mellon? Wow. And how that can be kind of a, a dagger, even though I don't think anybody's intending anything by it some of this stuff is because we have these experiences we put people into these categories and that's how we try to understand the world around us and some things just don't mix and we need to we need to become more broad with what we what our categories are but i don't know if anything's really intended to be offensive but that's something that you certainly face uh and it can be uh it can be certainly a problem for you internally when somebody has that reaction. Right. So, you know, when I think about what I shared a little bit ago about this idea of the importance of stories in the world, 
I feel it as though this story around my experience as a chemical engineer is a really important one too, because I think the reality is there more men in general go into engineering as a field. So yes, it's um, women tend to be, you know, lesser number there. And then I think particularly one of the things I wanted to get at with that particular essay that you're talking about in the book is my experience as a black woman in engineering, because I think that's an even smaller proportion. And, and I think the reality is it's a, it's a tricky space to exist in, to be a woman, a black woman who is skilled in the fields of math and science and can excel in the field of engineering. And yet I think it is a field that is dominated by white men and so there's also some of those struggles with being in that field and so so I will say this I think do I think that when people are surprised by my background that they are intending ill will I don't think that is the case but I do think we as a society have almost conditioned us to have certain types of expectations of certain types of people and I think that actually is a problematic way we exist, even if, as you're saying, these are heuristic devices that allow us to make sense of this this huge business of the world we live in. I think part of what we need to keep doing is challenging some of those assumptions. And I think even though I am not in the field of engineering now, I think even sharing my own experience and struggle around being a black woman in engineering is part of helping to expand that narrow story that we've almost put on the shoulders of black women. And I think additionally, with that essay, I wanted to add nuance to it to express this idea that as a black woman, there is a particular weight that I carry around regarding my decisions and what I choose to do even in my career that in many ways it's not just about me but it's about all the other black women or even girls of color who might uh, or the black girls or girls of color who might look up to me and look up to the decisions and choices I make and see me as an example of what they could become and so so that was really what I was trying to do with that particular essay is eliminate the ways in which, you know, my own experience had its challenges with becoming an engineer and what happens when you as a black woman excel in these fields, but that's not really the area you want to be in. And yet you also carry this, uh, I guess, just a sense of weightiness of knowing that because of injustices that have happened in society, because in many ways, over time, historically, Black women were not encouraged into the field of engineering, pushed in that direction, that when you actually did do that, it was more than about just you. It was about the other people who were watching you, too. The, the example for, for other women is definitely great. Other Black women, they can, they can look at it and say, okay, here's somebody who's gone accomplish this one thing I, I find a little bit um, tough to deal with is that we even find it surprising though you know today we still do find it surprising sometimes we find it surprising if a man decides to be a nurse or we find it surprising if a man decides mm-hmm. to be a dental hygienist or you know those things still surprise us and I wonder if some of that is because and you didn't stay in the field of chemical engineering that a little bit, when we look at society, we expect people to have desires or a level of satisfaction from doing different jobs. So we don't see that men are going to be very happy in the nursing field. We're completely wrong on that. We could be, but we, we look at that and we say, well, that's probably not the right field. It's not a good fit. And the same goes for women in engineering or et cetera. What, where, where do you fall on that? Like, do you think that we push people into certain choices because we want to level the playing field, if you will, or try to get a good representation of the population, but we all offer something different a little bit. And so maybe we're not all great fits everywhere. Yeah. I, you know, I, 
know, I think it's an interesting discussion, which I have shared when I share my story around engineering, that I, I in some ways, feel as though there was a sense of pressure to go into that field because people saw the possibility of what I could do in that field. And also the reality that we do want more women in this field. So, so I think there is certainly that, but you know, one of the other things that I will say related to this idea too, is that I have looked back on my time in engineering and wondered if maybe there were other experiences I could have had that might have been more encouraging that maybe I would have stayed with it. Maybe if I'd had maybe a mentor who I felt really understood my experience as a woman in engineering, uh, particularly as a black woman in engineering, would that have helped me to stay in the field? I, I don't know. I don't have the answers to that. And so on one hand, I do sometimes think, are we, do we sometimes push people into areas to try and level the playing field? I think it's possible. But then I also think, I think sometimes people have a desire to get into certain fields, but then they don't necessarily find the support that they need to continue in those fields because maybe they are doing something that doesn't fit with some of the norms that we've established in society. Uh, so I think there is that possibility as well, too. But what I will say just related to all of this discussion is that I think it's important that the people who maybe are not following the paths that we typically delineate in society uh, when they choose career paths or something, I think it's important that we verbalize and share those experiences and stories to just expand, help expand even our own framework for what is possible. And so with that regard, I am thankful that I studied chemical engineering. I'm thankful for the opportunities I have had to share about that over the years. And I'm also thankful that I ended up becoming a writer because I, I think within that move, I was making a statement that choosing what I'm passionate about and what I care about, that's important too. And I think that in many ways is a good example of being a good role model to all these young girls who might look up to me. And after college, you went on and you lived abroad for quite some time, primarily in Africa or South Africa, correct? I, so I did spend a few years in South Africa right after I finished graduate school. So I, I returned to graduate school. So I, I studied chemical engineering in undergraduate. I returned to graduate school and I got an MBA and a master's of public policy because I was planning to work in the field of community and economic development. And I ended up going to Cape Town, South Africa to work with women with a microfinance project. So working to uh, find, employ, like create micro enterprises as a form of material poverty alleviation. And it was while I was over there that I ended up meeting the guy that I would end up marrying. And when we got married, I moved back to Cape Town and I lived there for a couple of years. And then we came to the States, back to the States about, nine years ago and settled in North Carolina. And did you find when you were overseas, you do overseas is a very broad topic. When you were in Cape town, was there a difference in the way people react to populations than there is in the United States? Was it fundamentally uh, can you repeat different? The question for me? Was it fundamentally different the way that we categorize people, Cape town compared to the United States? Is there something that's, similar across all the boards, all the countries? What was that? Oh, oh, you know, mm -hmm. this is a good question. And so I would say in South Africa, they certainly had their own categories, but they were also categorizing people by race as well, too. And, and I've lived in multiple other places, too. And I've seen that as well. Lots of categorizing by race. I think categories happen in other ways, too. I, I have seen that in other contexts as well. But here's what I think is true. I think we are a society that fundamentally categorizes people. And I think one of the main reasons we do that is 
across the board, there is a sense that in each place there is a dominant culture. And part of the reasons the categories come about is in order for the dominant culture to maintain their power. I think that's where it stems from. Now, at this point in society, I don't want to say everywhere all the time that that we're seeking to try and continue to enforce that. But I think we live with the ramifications of that. And that is, that is why we continue to see the categories. Categorization? Anyways, people put into <laughs> categories. So, um, I, I know I was at a, I gave a lecture about a year ago, and I remember someone asking a question of the value of the categories. Do I ever think categories will go away the way we categorize people and I was saying to the person that you know it's interesting because in many ways I am very proud of the category that I am part of in society I'm proud of being a black woman I'm proud of proud of this and yet at the same time I hear what that person is saying and I think the reality is as long as there is injustice in the world the categories matter because that is part of how we recognize the presence of injustice so that we can work to eliminate the injustice that might exist in the world. Well, I, I won't completely filibuster on the dominant culture narrative. You can certainly respond. I, and this, this may be my own bias. I have trouble with that particular narrative because what it does is this goes back to your school example. If you have a classroom of five children of color and you have a classroom of five white children, those five children of color are of various backgrounds, but so are those five children, so are those five white children. And so I think that we tried to say this is a dominant white culture, but, and this is part of the problem, I think, with what, people call, you know, maybe the rural or the lower middle class white or whatever's happening in the country is that not all of the white population fits into the mold of what we would call the dominant culture either. And so I, I don't know if it's so much as it's a way to maintain power as it's a way for us just to understand what's going on around us. And I think that we, we too often look at at white culture as one white culture, but it's, it's very diverse because you could, you, you can have lots of poverty, lots of all of these other problems where there's no power whatsoever. Um, and, and I know that, that that's hard for me to understand from my perspective, but do you, and, and we do the same thing when we look at this, is something that bothers me was when we talk about African-American Africa has 53, 54 different countries, regions, different backgrounds, religions, etc. It's very hard to look at that continent, which is massive, and to say that because of your appearance, this is one identity of you. It really doesn't, it just doesn't sit well with me because I think every individual has a better story to tell than the categories that we put them in. Oh, I mean, I think there's plenty of truth in that. And I, I think it's true that exactly if you go back to the classroom example, even if these five children might, you know, in appearance be categorized as a white person, they're each going to have their own particular background, their own particular experience. I, I do not disagree with that in any sense. I think what I am trying to get at with that particular example is that there, maybe within the classroom setting, let's just use this example of my experience when I was going to school, is that there was a large focus on world history, but oftentimes, and I write about this a little bit in the book, that the history we would study would be history that was related to people of European descent. And so I think in that regard, it creates a dynamic possibly in a classroom where we are indicating that that type of history is the more valuable history. 
without even saying that. And so, so I think that's kind of some of the, the nuance that I'm trying to get at here. I, I certainly think you're going to get a full representation of different types of people. But I think our, our particular country has done a beautiful job of trying to almost erase some of those differences and just compress people into one group that has um, historically had greater power in our society and that people of color have had lesser power in our society. That's, that's, that's how you know, our country was created and what we did. Um, and so I think we, we live with those results even today, even if what you're saying is true within that classroom setting, you're going to get 10 different stories, 10 very unique different stories. And I think there's absolutely space for those 10 different unique stories. And I think it's important that we recognize them too. Yeah, absolutely. And so, to, so after you've talked about those things in, in the book, another, another a fun portion of the book, you know, to lighten it up just a tiny bit here is you talk about how some, sometimes uh, our backgrounds lead us to, you know, when we're, when we're mixing different cultures, different races, different backgrounds, sometimes what we view as, all right, this is what's acceptable or this is what's expected. We make some giant mistakes and usually people are pretty forgiving of those. I, I provided you with an example of, uh, a lady that we know here from Tobago, Trinidad and Tobago. Hey, come over for Thanksgiving mm-hmm. curry. You know, she brought curry. I love the curry and I ate, I ate tons of potato curry, but it was something that you wouldn't expect to see, you know, in that right, exact right. moment. And it's just, that was a precise reminder of the difference, the absolute differences that there are that you can't really overcome i think that for somebody to have to bring um salmon fillets to a potluck would be unheard of in kansas of course you know but right up up here it's Mm -hmm. it's very frequent when we have every friday we have a potluck it's very frequent for somebody to bring salmon but most of the population is participating in subsistence salmon fishing and so we have these differences that you can't over that we can't necessarily overcome just by saying, right. look, we're all, everything is, everything's washed away now. We're all going to start over fresh. There are these differences that seem to be inherent between different backgrounds of people. Right. Absolutely. I, you know, it, it's interesting. I remember when I was living, maybe I was living outside of the United States. I can't remember where this conversation happened, but someone was saying to me how, Americans spend a lot of time talking about food. And I, I have carried that thought with me for a while and pondered, I wonder what it is in that. I don't think it's just as simple as we just like food, uh, which, I mean, that could be the case. But there was a point where I thought, you know, America is formed from, we have this idea of this melting pot, I guess we would want to call it, and that we we come and we have these other identities, but we come here and we create this new thing, which I think happens maybe to some extent. But I I think the thing is, as people move around and migrate and meet new people, there's a lot of things from history that we may lose. And I think one of the things that we often will hold on to is food. And, and so for me, that's, almost makes me think maybe that's part of why we have so many conversations around food and experiences around food is it's a desire to in a way preserve pieces of who we are and maybe when language fades away and other cultural traditions fade away there's still a sense of food that can exist well and there's there's a there's certainly a a difficulty that we face trying to define ourselves because we look at the United States as a melting pot. And that's certainly true in Alaska specifically. If you look at just raw numbers, the in and out migration is larger than most States. There are some isolated examples, sometimes in New York city, etc. There may be more in and out migration 
as a percentage of population than in Alaska, but Alaska has lots of moving in and out. And so it brings together, and Alaska is also very military, brings together a lot, lots of different backgrounds. And so we're not really on a on an even footing when we come together. So we have to find a way to present ourselves or to, to define ourselves. Mm. And so we, we look at this melting pot and, and sometimes we want to say there's a, there's a strict way that we have to do X, Y, or Z. And sometimes we look at that as a, as an approach of maybe discrimination or that, you know, back to that dominant culture, dominant culture narrative but there's also a way that we have to understand how to just navigate our complex economy, et cetera. And some of that is what's at play. But you, you also talk about your, your Sunday morning churches, going to church on Sunday morning. And you have the, the potential of perhaps it being a melting pot, but that sometime, sometimes even in our most ideal locations, it's hard for us to, to, um, bridge these gaps that we have? Yeah, I, um, it's interesting when you think about that, the place, the ways in which we, we do maintain that sense of wanting to be connected to people like ourselves. And, and, you know, Casey, I will say, I, I think this would be a much longer conversation but I, I do feel like there are these places where I I think there is maybe value in trying to connect with people who share certain cultural experiences, especially in a society that may want to try and eliminate those cultural experiences and sweep you up into maybe what the larger society would call more normative experience. And, uh, and so I think there is that sense of how do you maintain that in the face when people are trying to almost assimilate you into something else. And yet at the same time, I do think too, that it is good for us to connect across cultures to, uh, to extend those hands and to share meals together, to be part of each other's lives. And so, so here's here's what I think. I, I think history has given us a very complex way of interacting, and I think it is of great importance for us to continue listening to the stories of people whose stories we don't hear as often. I think it's critical for us to really try and examine the ways in which history has built the society that we engage with today look for the spaces of injustice and work to rid ourselves of injustice that might exist and recognize that we are journeying in that direction, that there aren't always these easy answers for everything. I could, I think I could probably spend another two or three, four, eight hours talking with you. I can't take all of your, all of your time. Maybe (laughs) Maybe the next time that you write a book, you can come back and we can talk tons yeah, more. Sure, I mean, it's such absolutely. a, it's such a, it's such a, a writ because I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about all the things I'd love to talk to you about. And I'm going, I'm running, I'm running against the clock here, but, um, so you, you go to school in Anchorage and you decide to leave Anchorage. And this is something that we're fighting here in Alaska is that we are losing a lot of our 18 to 22 year olds, our university system, Mm. our university system is struggling as far as it it has become more of a community college. I mean, I I go to classes, but the only, I'm never going to graduate from these classes. I'm just simply taking some more uh, classes Mm. if I want to do more advanced graduate studies. So I, I grab a class here or there. Um, so why did you choose to leave the state? What, was it simply to leave Alaska or, or something else? And, and then also, why did you decide, okay, I'm not coming back? Yeah, no, those are great questions. So I will say, the first one, why did I decide to leave? So I talked about this a little bit earlier, just kind of briefly, this idea that I, I feel like I was searching for something. I, as much as 
Anchorage and Alaska embraced me and embraced my family, there was something out there that I wanted to see, to see more of the world, to experience more of it, to, I guess, I don't know, it's so cliche to say to find myself, but I think those were all the, you know, the 17-year-old thoughts that were going through my head when I left. And so that's what I went off and did. And I really spent the better part of my 18, 19, and 20s doing that, living places, experiencing new things, living overseas. And honestly, when I finished graduate school, I had come back to, um, or sorry, when I was finishing graduate school, I spent my final semester in Barcelona, Spain. And I was in Barcelona, Spain, and I was thinking, you know what? I think I'm just ready to go back to, to Anchorage because I have seen many places in this world. And one thing I have discovered is that the things that matter most to me are friends and family. And I think I want to go back to the place where I'm from. And so in my head, I actually was thinking I'm going to move back to Anchorage as it so happens. Right after I finished bar- my time in Barcelona, I had written this grant to go to Cape Town in South Africa to work with these women that I had mentioned earlier in our interview. And it was there that I met my husband. And I tell you what, Casey, your life can just change. Like the ideas that you have, the plans you have, they can flip flop. And, you know, before I knew it, I was in this relationship with this guy who was living in South Africa and he's from Zimbabwe originally. And there was a time after we got married where we were contemplating coming back to Anchorage and it just, it just wasn't working out. We weren't finding like employment and it's also very cold for him. So there were multiple layers, but you know, deep in my heart, there's this part of me that I think, I think one day, I think one day I probably will go back. Well, I don't know what that will look like. Huh? Well, yeah. I mean, when when you're talking about the, the, the climate we just got done with such a, a cold snap, but it, and it would not be, it's it's not the normal path to have uh, people that make their money outside and then come back to enjoy their money later on. It's always been the reverse, but I I tend oh, right. yeah. I tend to see that we're we're moving a little bit more that way here in Alaska, and some of it, you know, with with oil with the prices. I, I just think the economy in general is changing to where that's not the dominant player and it's not going to be into the future. People are leaving Alaska in this in the search of of uh, financial gain, but they can't mm-hmm. they can't quite throw away that experience that they had in Alaska. They don't quite find it any other place, and so it calls them back. You know, at some point, I think the, so. I think there is, there definitely is something about it that calls you back. And I, I mean, I was just maybe two weeks ago, I was thinking, you know what I would really love to do? I would really love to go to Anchorage for two weeks and get a little Airbnb and just write for two weeks there. Like do some sort of writing retreat for myself up there. And Way it just up on the dream hillside. came into my head. Yes. And kind of be in the space of my childhood and just see what happens with the words when I'm there. And the idea it is hugely appealing to me. So I, I, I don't know if one day truly my husband Yash and I would actually go back to live all the time, but I think certainly I can say with confidence that I will be back in the coming years that, this is a place that will not be far forever far from my heart. It, it can't ever be far from my heart. Go well, and bring, bring the family and make sure and, and share that with them. I know that one of the things for, for me is I, sometimes it comes up, well, there's this opportunity and maybe it's time to, to move on from the state. And, and then I look at my children and, and there's just so much of the state that I want to share with them that, that I just yeah. I can't, you know, I just want to share that with them. And so that's part of it. So hopefully you'll yeah. share a little bit of it with your children. Um, oh, I with have. Your They've husband. Been. They came with me. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, my girls came with me when I came in 2018 and they really loved it. They did. So I am, I'm eager in the coming years for us to go visit there. It, 
it is it's a complicated existence for us because my husband's family is in Zimbabwe and we were just there in November and we hadn't been there in many years and so that's in the, that also is another part of their story too even though they don't live there so it I guess it's just the experience of being connected to many parts of the world well let me let me know whenever your your next collection or book comes out the book that we talked about today is all the colors we will see reflections on barriers brokenness and finding our way Patrice also does speaking. She does teaching. She's got a discussion guide for the book. I hope that everybody will will go and check it out. Patrice, is there anything else, any place that somebody should go? I can't recommend the book any more than I than I have. Um, PatriceScopo.com. What else? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Casey, thank you so much for having me on today. It has been a great conversation, and I am thrilled that you enjoyed the book so much. So thank you for that. And yeah, patricescopo.com. You can find me on my Facebook page at at patricescopo writes. And I am on Instagram at at patricescopo. And maybe I'll move that up to the front because I'm sure by now everybody's walked outside of the door. You know, they let, they left it an hour and three minutes. We don't get to watch people walk out of the door. So that's just kind of the way of the podcast. But anyways, Patrice, thank you very much. And I uh, can't wait to talk to you again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.